sometimes it's those very tragedies that remind us why we have fled to Jesus. I had a friend who used to say, um, you know, some people talk about Christianity as being a crutch. Jesus is just a crutch for you. And he would say, actually, he's more like a stretcher. Because my, my need is so desperate. I need a lot more than a crutch. I need someone to pick me up and carry me. Because I'm a dead man. In this world, this is a broken, crumbling world. And things like this man's death, Andy's death, remind us of why we have fled to Jesus. Let's pray as I ask for help this morning. And we open God's word. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that this is where you have spoken to us most clearly about who your son is. And your son is the one who has shown us most clearly who you are. We want to set our eyes on Jesus as we think today about the gospel and how it relates to family. How it relates to significant relationships. And I need your help to faithfully teach. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. And would you please give grace to your people now through your word. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever experienced something like this where you have, there's some reality in your life, some, some true thing about your life that just hasn't quite settled in yet. So like, for example, um, when we became new parents, there was a moment when we were parents. And then even for like a few days or a few weeks or a few months after that, it was like still sinking in. It's still, the practical effects of it were still needing to take root. So like, at first, we just like, we just like stayed up as late as we did before we had kids. And in fact, because Lucia slept so well, we just brought her with us everywhere we went. So we'd be out like on the town till like midnight with the three-week-old. <laughs> because the fact that we were parents hadn't really practically worked, the reality hadn't worked itself into our lives yet. We weren't, we weren't acting in line with this new identity. Or here's another example, maybe some of you wives could relate to, um, you know, the recent name change after you get married, and you used to write your old last name on every check you signed, and you find yourself now rewriting it and forgetting that you have a new last name now. There was a point when Amy, my wife, decisively became a Holton, and yet there were a few checks that reminded her, like, oh yeah, I, I forgot. I'm, I, have a new, I have a new identity now. Well, there's something similar that happens in the life of a Christian, in the life of a person who's walking with Christ. And uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning, but let me just give you a little bit of an outline of the context of 2 Corinthians and what's going on when we get here to chapter 5. Paul... Is, has a problem with the Corinthians. Actually, they have a problem with Paul. 
excuse me, actually they have a problem with somebody coming into the church and calling Paul's apostleship into question. And the reason they're calling it into question is because this guy suffers so much. So how could he be, I mean, how could he be God's man if he's always, if he's always going through all these trials? So he's under attack because he suffers so much. And Paul's response to it throughout the book is, is basically the fact that I remain faithful to the word of God in those trials proves that I'm an apostle because it means that no matter what comes my way, Jesus is my king and I will proclaim his word. So faithfulness in the trial was not... Faithfulness, the trial was not a demonstration of Paul's failure to be an apostle. It was his faithfulness in the trial that proved that he was an apostle. Faithfulness in the trial that proves God owns me because I'm not backing away from what he told me to say no matter what happens. And you can see it in 2 Corinthians 4. So if you're in your Bibles, you can just flip back page or two. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2, Paul says, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. I will faithfully preach the gospel no matter what happens. And what happened? Chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 4 verse 8, just a few verses later. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What does it take for Paul to be able to maintain this faithfulness in these incredible trials? It takes something extraordinary. It takes his death. Now, before I talk about this, I need to kind of create some categories. They may already be there for you, but let me just try to, let me try to clarify these categories or give them to you. And we've already kind of talked about it a little bit. There is, in the Christian walk, an accomplishment of something that has taken place for the Christian. And there is also the need for the application of that accomplishment to your present life. There are times in which the Bible states that there are things that are true about us that we're not yet experiencing the fullness of in our senses or seeing in our everyday lives. For example, there's a sense in which we as God's people are sinless because that's what Jesus has done for us. It is an accomplishment. There's a sense in which we're sinless. And at the same time, we know very well that we're quite sinful. And even if our sinlessness has been accomplished for us, it's still, need in, it's still in need of application to us. Accomplishment and application. And sometimes the Bible is going to actually tell you to act a certain way because of some reality in your life. Or even better, it will tell you who you should be in light of who you really are. It, this, it will argue this way. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 5.7. Cleanse out the old leaven. Leaven is just an illustration for sin because it has the ability to spread and to affect the whole lump of dough. 
Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. So cleanse out the sin in your congregation. This is, a, this is the context. Cleanse out the sin that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You really are purified. So purify yourselves. And the Bible really loves to do this with regards to our death with Christ. Colossians 3, 3. For you have died, Christians. You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You died, so... Put to death what's earthly in you. Be who you should be in light of who you are. Does that make sense? Accomplishment and the need for application of the reality. And Paul's willingness to faithfully preach the gospel at the expense of his life required his death. And this death has already been accomplished for him. It was accomplished at Calvary. Our verse for today, our passage, 2 Corinthians 5.14, One has died for all, therefore all have died. When Jesus died, if you belong to him, his death counts for your death. So that it can be said, when he died, because you belong to him, you died. This is exactly what Paul teaches in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We, we were buried, therefore, with him. By baptism into death. Or Romans 6.6, 6, we know that our old self was cruci- crucified with him. So if you belong to Jesus, there is a sense in which you have been united to him. You no longer are united to Adam, who you used to belong to. You're united to Jesus, and when he died, he died your death for you. It was an accomplishment. It was decisive. It is over. If you belong to Jesus, you died. And that historical accomplishment also has a present day application. And here's what it looks like in Paul's life. 2 Corinthians 5.15 Next verse. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him. This is what it looks like. Your death has been accomplished decisively and its application is that now you no longer live for yourself. Why? Because you died. And now you live for Him. Why? Because you died. It's over. They no longer live for themselves. Christians live for Jesus, and that's what it looks like when co-crucifixion is applied to your life. 
your co-crucifixion with Jesus. And it begs the question, what does it look, what does it look like to live for self? Because that's supposed to be done with. What does it look like to live for self? And why does God care about this? And today what we're going to look at is the kingdom of self and how the gospel confronts it and how it's applied to our lives. How does the gospel confront the kingdom of self and how is that supposed to apply to our lives? And specifically what I want to look at is how it applies to the family. This is going to be relevant to any significant relationship in your life. So if you don't have a a household, if you're not married, if you don't have children, this still applies to your life because it will will apply to your your working relationships, your relationship with your parents, your relationship with your brothers. Any relationship is affected by self and the kingdom of self. So this is relevant for you, but I will tell you marriage is the crucible. And so is parenting. At least it's a major crucible. And let me just give credit here where it's due. Paul David Tripp wrote a book about marriage called What Did You Expect? And a lot of this comes from him. I've basically taken some of his main ideas and developing them. I'm talking a little bit more about it than he does in this book, but let me give him credit for this. The kingdom of self. The kingdom of self is... I'm going to talk about two elements of it, the heart of self and the agenda of self. The heart of self and the agenda of self, and they're really tightly related because the heart drives the agenda. The heart of self, I'm going to boil it down to three adjectives that I'm going to pull from Romans chapter 1. Why don't you go ahead and flip there in your Bibles, Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 25. This is where Paul is basically, uh, in the letter, demonstrating that all people have fallen short of God's glory. All people are sinful. All people are justly uh, deserving of God's wrath. He's making the case for it. And right here, he's going to just say something about how the heart functions. This is the heart of the natural man. This is what it does. This is what it has always done. This is what you and I have always done. And there are three adjectives that I'd like to boil this down to. The heart of the natural man is autonomous. That is, it is proud and self-ruled. It's proud. We're born proud. I can do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it my way. Proud. The heart of the natural man is foolish. And the heart of the natural man is idolatrous. Worships things it ought not to worship. That is, it worships something besides the one true God. Autonomous, foolish, idolatrous. Let me just read through this passage. Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, humanity, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
So notice three things. Notice one, the autonomy, the pride, and the self-rule. I'm in control of this thing. I'm going to do it my way. I know how to rule my world, God. Thank you. Verse 21, they did not honor him as God. Not even honoring the creator. They did not give thanks to him. Verse 22, they claimed to be wise. This is is autonomy, independence, self-rule. This is the heart of the natural man. And there's a consequence of that. Here's what happens to... You become darkened. Check it out at the end of verse 21. They became futile in their thinking. Your thinking goes screwy when you start to do this. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, even though they claimed to be wise, they actually became fools. So now you you think you can rule it. You think you can do this on your own. You're not giving God thanks. You're not giving God credit. You're not giving Him glory. You become actually more foolish when that happens. Your mind doesn't start to work as well. You think you got it figured out, but you don't really got it figured out. And there is something that happens when you do that. You're proud, you're foolish, the natural result is you start worshiping the wrong thing. And that's exactly what happens. Notice the net result in verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. And and we'll just call this idolatry. Now, the heart of the natural man if this is all of our hearts, I'm guessing most of us never, most of us, maybe this happened, most of us never bow down to, uh, you know, images of like some bird or, or uh, you know, some creeping thing, you know, the caterpillar idol or whatever. Okay, most of us have not experienced that, but I guarantee you, you have loved something more than you have loved God. You've loved something more than you've loved God. A relationship, your kids, your husband, pornography, money, food, Something. You have at some point in your life, and probably it has ruled you. And the core of Paul's criticism is in verse 25. Drop your eyes down there. We've gone through 24. Here's the core of the criticism. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. This is a worship issue. This is what the natural heart does. It's proud, it's foolish, and it worships things it shouldn't worship. And we're all born we're born into this. This is how your heart normally works before Jesus breaks in and starts changing things. This is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 2, uh, chapter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Don't have to turn there, but listen to this. You were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, catch this, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature, by nature, this is your natural state, to carry out the passions of the flesh, to carry out the desires of the body and the mind. Idolatry, you're just just loving anything and everything more than you love God. You were by nature, Paul says, like the rest of mankind, children of wrath. 
Because God does not stand for idolatry. This is the natural state of the human heart. And the agenda is we put that heart to work. And actually, it's, it's the other way around, right? That heart puts us to work. Those desires put us to work, and we live our lives, we have lived our lives in pursuit of these desires that are just drawing us to anything and everything more than to God. We're slaves. That's how, that's how Paul talks about it in Romans 6. Slave master of sin. The slave master of these lusts of the flesh, Paul calls them. Because of that, we've lived much of our life on a mission, and it's a mission to build and to preserve a personalized kingdom of self. We're kingdom builders. We want to build it, we want to preserve it, and that kingdom is an attempt to satisfy our self-exalting, our prideful, our foolish, our idolatrous passions of the flesh. That's what we're, That's what's driving us, and we're setting up a kingdom that's trying to satisfy these desires. Okay, We've all tried to build some sort of world, some sort of dream that will satisfy these desires. You're doing it in all kinds of ways. And we'll talk about what it looks like in just a minute. But that's our heart and that's our agenda. Idolaters and we're kingdom builders. We're trying to satisfy it. We are building a kingdom. And there's another kind of kingdom. The kingdom of God. And God has a heart and God has an agenda too. And this is the heart of God. We've talked about this uh, several times now. The heart of God is to spread a celebration of His glory as He reveals Himself in Jesus. God's mission is to display Himself in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is full of great glory. And He's on a mission to stir our hearts up to see Him and love who He is. God's on a mission for us to celebrate Jesus. That's the point of creation. That's why you were made. To celebrate Jesus. And God is on a mission to spread that. Romans 11.36 From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him are all things. And to Him be glory forever. Amen, says Paul. And there's a direct conflict, if you haven't seen it, between the heart of the natural man and the heart of God. The heart of the natural man says, I'm in charge, I can do this. The heart of the natural man is foolish, and because it's foolish and autonomous, it starts seeking the pursuit of bad desires, desires that have taken over, desires that are idolatrous. We love things more than we love Jesus. That's our heart. God's heart is that you love Jesus more than you love anything, which means there's a direct conflict in the natural state of man and God's heart. And his agenda is to conquer the idle heart of man and to establish his kingdom in our lives. And he's going to do it in two stages. First, he's going to accomplish it. He's going to accomplish the destruction 
of the kingdom of self, and this is what he has done at Calvary. 2 Corinthians 5.14, our passage for today. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. One has died for all, therefore all died. Your kingdom of self, yourself, died if you belong to Jesus. Because at Calvary, God has confronted and conquered your kingdom in his accomplishment at the, at the cross. The cross is, is a display of God's hatred for your autonomy. His hatred for your idolatry. It is the pouring out of his wrath on Jesus because of your kingdom of self. And he hates it. He has poured out his wrath for your sin on the cross. If you belong to Jesus. And he hates it not only because it's such a dishonor to him, but he hates it because it destroys us. He loves us. You're not made for autonomy. You're not made for idolatry. These are are foolish things. The mind's not thinking right. You're not working right when you love Cheetos more than you love Jesus. And it happens. And I'll show, you, I'll show you how you can tell if that's the case. You're not made for that. Out of love for you, God has decisively dismantled your kingdom of self at Calvary when he co-crucified you together with him. Now, it is crazy to me how people will go to Calvary to say, this is a picture of how, how highly God esteems you. To go to Calvary to talk about self-esteem. God has a commentary on self, and it is not this, esteem yourself. God's commentary on self is that he is going to conquer self. Because self is autonomous. The church talks a lot about self-esteem, but I guarantee you they are not pulling it from the Bible. God is all about God-esteem not self-esteem. We esteem ourselves quite highly, as it is. He conquered you and your kingdom of me when he crucified you with Jesus. And that's the accomplishment of his destruction of you, of yourself. And what now is left but the application of it to our daily lives? The application of the destruction of me at Calvary. How does that happen? 2 Corinthians 5.15, our verse again. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. There's a direct correspondence between what has been accomplished at Calvary and how you're supposed to live. And the way you're supposed to live is not for self. Not for that old kingdom-building man. And what I want to talk about right now is how God intends to apply that accomplishment to your life, especially in regards to your significant relationships, especially in regards to your marriage, especially in regards to your parenting. So I said a minute ago that the heart's in the natural state have fueled a mission to build this kingdom of self. I'm trying to build some sort, some sort of world 
some sort of dream, some kingdom. And it's an attempt to satisfy self-exalting, prideful, foolish, idolatrous passions of the flesh. And although Jesus has decisively conquered self, because of indwelling sin, we're still wrestling with self. We're still wrestling with the remnants of self because of indwelling sin. And even though we're dead to sin, as the scripture clearly states, it also commands us to put to death our sinful tendencies. You're dead, but you need to put yourself to death. Like Romans 8.13, Colossians 3.5 that we just read. There's something that's true about you, but you're needing to live it out. Right? Just like we talked about at the beginning, uh, you, you are a parent, but you're now needing to live out that reality in the way that you structure your home or whatever, whatever the case may be. Accomplishment and application. And this means that even as Christians, we're still building our kingdoms. We still do this. We still act like the person we used to be. Even as Christians, you're a kingdom builder. Guarantee it. And guess what? You brought your kingdom into your marriage. Guess what? So did your spouse. Which means one thing. War. Total war. Why? Because these are kingdoms of me. My kingdom. My desires. My dreams. James 4.1 What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. Your passions are at war. Okay. Oh, there we go. Okay. Most of the conflict in your that thing that's hot now. Okay. Most of the conflict in your marriage and in your other significant relationships is the result of somebody's or both people's kingdom being threatened. This is the cause of most of the quarrels. Maybe not everyone, but most of them is that somebody's kingdom of me is being attacked. It's under siege. And this is what it looks like. You've got some idea about how things are supposed to go. Some idea of how the day is supposed to go. Some idea of how you thought life was going to be. Just some idea. And maybe it's a perfectly normal desire. And those desires turn rabid. And they turn into what Paul David Tripps calls subtle expectations and silent demands. Your your I wants and I desires have turned into I must and I will. Your your loose-handed, just normal desires have turned into tight-fisted idols. 
And what happens is the flesh just gets a hold of these legitimate desires, turns them into idols, and then your plan doesn't work out, and what do you have left? War, because the kingdom is under siege. Okay, and this all this happens in all of our lives. We all have dreams. They might be big dreams, like the kind of lifestyle you wanted to live, your career, how many kids you thought you were going to have, when you're going to have kids, how much money you're going to be making, how much money your spouse is going to be making, what your spouse was going to look like 10 years after you got married. All these dreams, all these desires, big, big picture desires. Or they might be little desires, like I just want the dishwasher to work, like for one night, normal, without flooding. Or I just want to get off work in time so I can make it home for the game. Or whatever, just just ideas of how life is supposed to go. And they might be normal, just normal everyday desires. And then what happens is that all too often, because of indwelling sin, these desires become subtle expectations and silent demands. I want turns into I must. And I'd like turns into I need and I'm going to have. So how do you know if the desire has gone rabid Just watch what happens when you don't get your own way. It's the, it's, the, it's the sure way to tell whether or not your desires are out of sorts. What kind of fruit do you bear when you don't get your own way? In our home, we call it cactus fruit. You've got cactus fruit and then you've got like, I don't know, orange trees or something. When you don't get your own, when you don't get your own way, how do you act? Get mad? Angry, frustrated, depressed, holding so tight to these things and life is just stripping them out of your hands and you go ballistic in any number of ways. The kingdom is under siege. So here's what it's kind of looked like in my life. I remember this time when I used to be a maintenance manager. So if there was a problem at at this condominium complex, they called me and... I would, I was, it was the same time I was going to school in Minneapolis, so I was a full-time student, full-time maintenance manager, full-time husband. We just had our second baby. The switch from one to two for us was totally killer. And I would be studying. I mean, this is a good desire. I'd be stu- God, we're paying thousands and thousands of dollars to go through this program in Minneapolis, and I'd have assignments to do, responsibilities to fulfill, and I'd sit down to study, and I'd hear the phone ring. I'd be, my heart immediately would be like, no, 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 no. And I wouldn't even answer it. And then I'd hear Amy answered upstairs. Kink! I'd hear the phone turn on. I'd be like, no! And I'd kind of, you know, I'd, I'd start typing a little faster, like, like oh, I hope this isn't... And then I'd hear the footsteps coming, and I'd hear the door open, click. And as soon as the door opened, I was like, no! Jeremy, Teresa's bathtub is clogged. Oh, I'm, I'm like cussing in my head at this point. I'm just like getting so frustrated. And this is a good desire. I'm just wanting to be faithful to my responsibilities. 
And then like, and she's wondering if you can fix it today because she's got company coming this weekend. And then it's like, okay, I slam the Mac, the laptop shut. I back, I, you know, I back my chair out. I'm like huffing and puffing. I'm grabbing tools. I'm slamming doors. I'm just, my kingdom is under attack. I want to study right now. I don't want to go plumbing. I was terrible at that job and I hated it. That's how you can tell. Here's another example. This week, Tuesday night, I think, I'm preparing for this study and we sit down at the dinner table and I said to the girls, do you know what? We all want to build a kingdom. And Lucia's like, what? What do you mean? We all have ideas of how we want things to be. We want everything to go our way. And as I'm explaining, she knocks over a full cup of root beer. No ice in it. It's just straight root beer. And it's coming right at me. And in this moment, or within the next few months, I started to realize something. In my mind, I have a dream of a house with no spilled root beer in it. Just a clean table. And I'm, I'm watching it. It's, it's landing. It's coming towards me. It's spreading like crazy. It's going into the cracks. It's going off the edge. It's Niagara falling into my lap. And it's going onto this chair cushion that I sit in at every meal that's going to be sticky now. And in my heart, I can just feel this, this rising, fleshly, demanding, kingdom-preserving anger and frustration as I'm telling her that we do this. And of course, you know, it can be much worse than that. It can be much worse than that. Just watch what happens when you don't get your own ways. And it happens over and over again. You have dreams in your life that are going nowhere, right? You've got dreams about places you wanted to go, projects that you want to get done, ways that you want your kids to turn out, a lifestyle you want to live, the kind of money you want to be making, the kind of career you thought you'd have, and you're spending a lot of time in your life pointing your finger at this person and this circumstance, and you're trying to fix all these little problems out there, and your spouse who is continually ruining your life, ruining your dreams, ruining your desires, standing in the way, and these kids who are constantly getting in the way of everything that you really need to be doing. And these circumstances, and your boss, and you're spending so much time in your life just pointing the finger, and it's, it's your husband, and it's your wife, and it's your kids, and it's the devil. And I just want to tell you, it's not him, it's not her, it's not them, it's Jesus. Because he's at war with your kingdom. And he loves you, so he's bringing it down. And it's in these moments that he is giving you grace by thwarting your self-destructive heart, that sin that still dwells in you, the self that still dwells in you, he's thwarting it. And it's in these moments that he is bringing about the application, or at least the opportunity 
for the application of the accomplishment. Here is an opportunity to no longer live for self. Because you died, remember? Christian? He died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for Him. I'm telling you, Jesus is a dream killer. Because He loves you. And the dream that He has for you is so much better than the dream that you have concocted for your life. Paul Tripp says that the fact that your marriage has brought the end of your dreams, and I think we can all relate to this in one way or another, the fact that that your marriage is bringing an end to some of your dreams or many of your dreams is not the sign that God is absent from your marriage. It's quite the opposite, actually. If If you're finding that your marriage is destroying your dreams then take hope because probably it means that God is on a rescue mission to deliver you from you and to deliver your marriage from you. And when God has brought you to the end of you, to the end of self, if that's where you're at, this marriage is ruining my dreams. Okay, you're coming to the end of you then. Or this marriage has ruined my life. Okay, You're coming to the end of you, then. Take hope. God loves to use dead men to do great things. He's bringing it to an end. So this is what Jesus is up to. He's applying the work of the cross to our lives by bringing us all to the end of ourselves, the end of our dreams, the end of our kingdoms, so that we can live for him. And the home is one of the main places that this takes place in your, in your marriage relationship, in your parenting relationship. And, and if you're not in that situation, I hope that you can feel this, this is how my heart works. We all do this. And it will make a huge difference in your relationships. At some other point, we'll talk about how the Bible instructs us to help our children with this as well. Because the Bible does have uh, a lot to say about children and their desire to build up their kingdom of me. But for right now, I just want to talk about how we uh, can work on our own hearts. So what can you do to cooperate with Jesus in these moments? These are opportunities. What can you do? Corrective measures. One, admit that you're a kingdom builder. Admit that you are a kingdom builder. It's so important for you. It's so important for your marriage. It's so important for your major relationships in your life for you to realize that you have got a major problem. You have a problem. And do us all a favor. Do your family a favor. Do your wife a favor. Do your husband a favor. Do your kids a favor. Do your friends a favor. And just admit that you are selfish. And so much of your life is driven by this selfishness. Your kingdom. You're a kingdom builder, man. Just admit it. Married couples waste so much time trying to fix the other problem. The biggest problem in your marriage is you. And I'm speaking to all of us. 
Admit that you're a kingdom builder. Two, cultivate a culture of confession in your home. This is just humility. Don't simply admit that you're a kingdom builder. That's where we need to start. Don't simply admit that, but own your specific sin. Here's how you build the culture in your home. When you blow it, ask for forgiveness. When you blow it, ask for forgiveness. And let me give you three little pointers here. One, when you ask for forgiveness, use the words, will you please forgive me? Not just, I'm sorry. Not just, sorry about it. Saying so- It's okay to say sorry. Like, sorry is, is like, I feel some sort of badness about what happened. But it doesn't take ownership. Will you please forgive me? That's how you go to war with self. Own it. Two, be specific about your sin. Will you please forgive me for getting angry and yelling at you? Will you please forgive me because I was being selfish and I wanted my own way? Be specific about your sin. And three, husbands, lead the way. I don't care if you just rolled your eyes and she threw a potato at your head. You ask forgiveness and show your family what this looks like. Be humble. Repent before them. Confess your sin. Be specific. Ask for forgiveness and use the words, okay? So ask forgiveness by using words. Be specific. Husbands lead the way. That's a suggestion of how you can cultivate a culture of confession in your home. Three, cultivate a culture of forgiveness in your home. I mean, we're both kingdom builders. I'm a kingdom builder. My wife is a kingdom builder. So I can relate to her when she does things that she knows she shouldn't have done. I can relate to that. It may not manifest itself exactly the same way that it manifests itself in my life, but I know what it's like. Because in those moments, I mean, you can testify to this. In In those moments, you know, it feels like you don't have control over it. You can get so angry. I can relate to that. So when she has the guts, when she's got the courage, the humility, the boldness, to admit her sin and ask for my pardon, I have got to make it a principle to be a person of forgiveness. So here's how you do this. This is how we do this. Say the words, I forgive you. Or at least, I commit to forgiving you because you might have to work through some stuff right like somebody violates you you might have to work through that and work like sweetie thank you for asking for forgiveness i'm angry still 
I'm, gonna, I'm working on this. Give me some time to pray. I commit to forgiving you. I will forgive you. And then when you have, say it. I forgive you. But you've got to cultivate this in the home. You've got to battle with your own soul in order to have a heart that truly forgives. And as a side note, this directly corresponds to a culture of confession. Do you know what I'm saying? If nobody's saying, will you forgive me? Then nobody's saying, I forgive you. I mean, and if that's the case, if nobody's saying, will you forgive me? And no one's saying, I forgive you. Then in a Christian home, there is no articulation of forgiveness from one person to another. That's bad. There is no environment, no verbal environment of, I release you from your debt. I forgive you. You have to be intentional about this. I mean, in our home, we, we, we make our children do this. Ask for forgiveness for hitting her. Chloe, will you please forgive me for hitting you? Okay, Chloe, you need to say, I forgive you, and it's all over. I forgive you, and it's all over. You have to build it into the home. Admit that you're a kingdom builder. Cultivate a culture of confession. Cultivate a culture of forgiveness. And fourthly, receive corrective input. Learn how to receive corrective input. Self doesn't want to be challenged. You do not want to be challenged. Yourself, your old man, the indwelling sin. It never wants to admit that it's wrong because self is fueled by pride. Self says, how dare you confront me? How dare you confront me? And it starts gathering troops. And we just call this defensiveness. And it's a good word for it because that's exactly what's happening. You're on the defense because the kingdom's under attack when people are trying to speak into your lives. So funny. We're not only proud, but we're foolish and we're idolatrous, which means people see this all the time. Outsiders can see us because we're acting foolishly, we're acting idolatrously, we have tendencies to slip into this even as Christians, and we don't want any help from these outsiders. So let me just, let me just read you a, a story here. We're drawn to an end here. This is a story out of C.J. Mahaney's Humility book. Anybody heard, has anybody heard the cream cheese story? Oh, good. New, a new, something new. Because if you've already heard it, then it kind of takes away from it. As I sat with my family... CJ's quoting from another pastor. As I sat with my family at a local breakfast establishment, I noticed a finely dressed man, man at an adjacent table. His Armani suit and stiffly pressed shirt coordinated perfectly with a power tie. His wingtip shoes sparkled from a recent shine. Every hair was in place, including his perfectly groomed mustache. The man sat alone, eating a bagel as he prepared for a meeting. As he reviewed the papers before him, he appeared nervous, glancing frequently at his Rolex watch. It was obvious that he had an important meeting ahead. The man stood up, and I watched him as he straightened his tie, prepared to leave. Immediately, I noticed 
a blob of cream cheese attached to his finely groomed mustache. He was about to go into the world dressed in his finest with cream cheese on his face. I thought of the business meeting he was about to attend. Who would tell him? Should I? What if no one did? We need each other in this war against self. And if you want to join Jesus in his agenda for your life, you're going to have to learn to receive corrective input from others. You're going to have to learn how to receive reproof. In the Proverbs, the wise man and the fool, again and again, the wise man knows how to take counsel, the wise man knows how to take correction, the wise man knows how to take a rebuke, and the fool will not hear it. Don't be a fool. So what does this look like? Three, three things. What does this look like to be a person who knows how to take corrective input? One, James 1.19, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Just listen. Someone comes to you, just listen. Zip your lip. If you need to say something, let it only be so that you can better understand what they're talking about. But don't get on the defense. Just just listen. Proverbs 12.15, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Just listen. Two, be willing to consider it. Chew on it. Take some time. Think through it. Pray through it. Look at it from a few different angles. So listen. Chew on it. Thirdly, thank these people when they do this in your life. Thank you. Whether or not in the end you believe that their feedback is correct, thank them for loving you enough to say something to you. That's hard. Because you know what, you know what they're thinking? I'm going in. <laughs> this is an intrude. Like I'm intruding their kingdom here, and uh, if I know people well enough, there's a likelihood that pride is going to uh, attack me from some angle here. So they're they're bold enough to come to you and trespass into your kingdom in hopes of helping you. Thank these people for doing that because they took a risk to love you in this way. Proverbs 27, 26. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Don't be all kissy face with one another and just, just you know, th- everything's cool, everything's cool, kisses, kisses, kisses. It's better that, that your friend wounds you. That's what friends do because they love you. You have to be a person who can take corrective input. So if you want to join Jesus in his application of your death, together with him, if you want to join him in his application of that accomplishment to your life, and if you want it to be said of you that he no longer lives for himself, she no longer lives for herself, but for him. Then I commend to you to admit that you're a kingdom builder, cultivate a culture of confession, cultivate a culture of forgiveness, and to receive corrective input. Two things in closing. One, um, 
we're gonna. Uh, this is. This may seem indirect, but I'll try to make a connection here. We're gonna start a marriage study. We're gonna start it at our house. We're gonna talk about these kinds of things. Um, so this will start on September 3rd. I have a sign-up sheet. It has 10 spots on it for 10 couples. The first five spots are for people who will be in the study first. The second five spots is for babysitters for those people. The study will run for like eight weeks, seven weeks. At the end of that time, they'll flip. And these people will babysit, and these people will go through the study. So if you sign up on this sheet, you are signing up for the study, and you are signing up for babysitting. Does that make sense? So... Um, and we're just gonna, we'll just keep doing this throughout this next year. When, this, when these two classes end, then we'll, we'll start them up until the church body, until there, there's just a sense that like everybody who wants to do this has done this, and, and then we'll move on to something else. But uh, I'll take this out to the, what's this room called? The Friendship Room. And uh, you, you can sign up for this if you're interested. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is this. Today, after the service, if you need to pray, if you need to talk to somebody, please stick around. Don't Like if God's doing something in your heart, stick around, let's talk. You don't have to run off. I'll be here, Che will be around. Grab somebody that, sh- that you trust, talk, pray, let the Holy Spirit do his work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your very loving assault on our kingdom and it's my prayer Father that you would use these things to bear much fruit in our lives much good fruit thank you for your faithfulness to your people and thank you for the gospel thank you for the gospel where where we learn that you have come to rescue us from your wrath and you have come to rescue us from our self-destructive hearts. You've come to rescue us from the pride that rules us. You've come to rescue us from the foolishness that, that directs us. You've come to rescue us from the idolatry that deceives us into thinking that these things, these lusts will ultimately satisfy And in fact, you are the only true satisfaction of the soul. Thank you for spreading the celebration of Jesus in our midst. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.